Welcome to Off Book, a podcast from The Young Vic, where we have conversations with creatives who have recently inspired us with their work here. It's great to be joined by the journalist, broadcaster, writer and filmmaker Paul Mason. Paul, thank you very much for uh, coming in uh, this afternoon. It's great to be here. Um, I read on your website, actually, that you became an atheist at 14, a Marxist at 16, and a Trotskyist at 19. (laughs) How did you become politicised so early then? Well, Luke, if you go to a Catholic grammar school in the 1970s, this is the time of, you know, the kind of uh, life on Mars, the kind of corruption of of every institution around us. Um, It was Catholic grammar school that taught me to be an atheist. It was pretty obviously bunkum. It was... Coming from a working class family at a time when working class militancy had actually hit a very high point in the mid 1970s. So even quite ordinary non-radical families like my mum and dad were becoming radicalised by the way society was going. Now, my dad was not just on strike. He occupied the offices of a trade union because they wouldn't support their strike. I mean, that's how militant it was. And you look around you and you say, well, what's the theory that explains all this? It's clearly obviously not Catholicism because it doesn't explain anything. And sitting on the shelf of my Catholic grammar school is the Communist Manifesto. And sitting next to it is a book by A.J.P. Taylor saying why it's rubbish. Well, I read both of them, but I kind of thought, well, no, it's not rubbish. And you get to university. I remember, you know, I I tried to not be so political at university. I thought, well, it's a a bit... um, stereotypical to go to university and become a kind of left-wing radical and so I spent a year trying to do what I was there to do music um, study politics and music which was an interesting degree in itself and I can remember walking down because this is what I used to do walking down one of those side streets in Sheffield reading Bertolt Brecht's The Mother in one of those blue book editions you used to get while Van after van of police were going past me towards a steel strike picket. And I thought, hold on a minute. You can't, this is not sustainable here. The the real thing that's being depicted in this play, which is about the Russian Revolution, is actually going past me now. So I did get involved. In fact, I went under my own volition because I'd read about it in the paper. In my second year at university, I went to a steel strike picket line where they'd called for a mass picket, and I set off, I can remember now, set off at 4am, walked past uh, the sex workers of Inner Sheffield, who were still on shift at that time, and, because there were no buses, got myself to that picket line, in, in time to see Arthur Scargill turn up with a bunch of miners, form a wedge, and attack this wedge of policemen. And I thought, that's it, right, that's it. Uh, all other bets are off. I need to get um, active and people know you mostly for uh, your work as a journalist and economics editor for um, for Newsnight and, and, and things like that. But um, I'm not sensing a lot of sort of artistic upbringing in this. Where did the arts come into this for you? Oh, they did. I mean, you know, my dad was a self-taught musician. I think he could read music better than he could read. Uh, I think uh, he was uh, had an incredible sense of music as a brass player who had been a brass band and then became a dance band player, semi-pro. So on that side, the music was there. And on my mum's side, her dad had been in one of the mid, mid-ranking 1930s dance bands. In, you know, and, and you know, we still had the, the, the paraphernalia. He died in 1940, but we still had the sax, the banjo, the straw hat, uh, the fur coat that his 
partner had worn, you know. I mean, I was wrapped up in the romance of not just music, but of performance, of theatre. And I think uh, the big struggle I had as a kid was to was whether or not I was going to follow that or whether or not I was going to do, as it were, hard social science. And I remember, you know, I, I, I had it all planned out. You know, I, I put down to do A-level economics, history, and I came in and just crossed it out and put music and art instead. And that's what I ended up doing. I literally changed the day before you had to put the choices in. I'm not sorry, but it has left my career as bifurcated because I was a professional musician, including a theatre musician in my 20s, packed it all in, became a journalist. Um, I'm very glad I did that because journalism liked me better than music liked me. Um, but, yeah, now, having done the stint, you know, 15-odd years in the regulated, highly impartial, highly rules-based TV news system, I just thought... In 2016, that's it. Uh, there are enough things happening in the world where you, the world needs to know exactly what I think. Um, in, not just because I think my ideas and my, my creative work might be interesting, but it's, it's a fiction right now to say, you can just look at this world and say, oh, well, so what? Let's, you know, let's go down the bar of the hotel uh, at 8 p.m. after we've been on air. Who cares? I, I care a lot, and I couldn't disguise that fact anymore. And just going back um, to those formative <coughs> years, th I don't know whether this is true, but it's my hunch that Northern Soul must have been quite uh, major for you. Look, I've made a documentary about uh, the years I spent on the Northern Soul scene, which were from around, around about 1975 to 79, which was at its height, and it was round the corner, every youth club you went to. I can remember going to a just an ordinary Catholic youth club and everybody else is doing that side-to-side -side shuffling that you used to do to status quo. <laughs> and then all the bad lads in the town, of which there were a few, and mainly were they from like ethnic minorities, some were black, some were Cypriot, suddenly leap onto the floor and start like doing handstands. And the music they're, they're, they're dancing to is just not normal. So that's where I started out thinking, uh, right, okay, this has got to be something. But then, I mean, look, I was doing A-level a art. I was doing A-level English literature. I'd read quite widely um, the the kind of beginnings of postmodernism in the in the mid to late seventies. I, I actually knew what what it meant to say we are doing something interesting with another culture. We are at, we, we wouldn't use this word then, but we'd use it now. Northern Soul was a form of curating black dance music from the sixties. Remember that 10-year period between when the records were made and when the records became popular among white working-class young people in Britain is 10 years. It's a, it's a lifetime in, in, in the history of popular music. And so we understood we are, we are almost montaging this. We are using it for our own devices to mean something that it didn't necessarily mean to the people uh, who made it. Uh, the amazing thing about Northern Soul, even now, and I still love the music. I, I hate the scene. I hate the kind of revivalist, you know, kind of old blokes in flared trousers <laughs> type thing. But the amazing thing about it was the unrestrained beauty of the singing, which Motown just squashed out of soul. Uh, you know, Berry Gordy and his Motown label really crushed it. But the unrestrained you know, eroticism, the unrestrained poetry of some of the singers is even now 
it does. Ins- you can tell from the way I speak about it. it. It massively inspires me in the way a lot of other popular music just never did. So is it inherently political, Northern Soul, for the audiences perhaps more than the artists? On the streets, as you came to the Wigan Casino or one of the old days, say the Ritz, mm-hmm. there would be NF graffiti. You know, say you know, and the, the, in the seventies, racism was unrestrained, the N word, all that kind of stuff. And you went in, and not only were you dancing to black music, but there were. I wouldn't say there were a lot of black people involved, but there were black people on the Northern Soul scene. And there were quite significant people. The dan- there were big dancers, you know, they were very well-respected kind of dancers. And being a dancer was everything. And you just knew you were, as soon as you walked into that fetid dance hall, you know, at 2 a.m. 2 was when it's, it opened, yeah? You open at 2 a.m., you end at 8, you know that for those six hours... You're in a bubble of anti-racism, but nobody ever uses the word anti-racism. It's just a, it's a being. And there was an incredible togetherness. There was an incredible kind of collective spirit uh, involved in Northern Soul. And you'll see it even if you read the, you know, the sort of Facebook pages or even memoirs of just quite, you know, poorly educated people who are involved in it. The one thing they will tell you is it meant something bigger than what it was. And does that feeling still exist, do you think, that there is the potential for music or the arts to kind of bring a group of people together under a banner, under a, a political ideology for, for the benefit of society? Look, I don't want the creative arts to start trying to bring people together under um, umbrellas, banners or ideologies. I think the creative arts have to, right now, because we're in a terrible crisis, we're in a crisis of the centre, crisis of social democracy and a crisis of globalisation, the creative arts have to communicate humanity and they have to keep rediscovering what that humanity is. That's, you know, I in other words, have no other manifesto for other people's creativity that it does than, than that it does that. Um, what I want to do is to tell coherent stories. And I think that, um, I mean, every three and a half minute soul record is a coherent story in a way that possibly not every 30 minute speech by major politicians is a coherent story. And certainly those who are signed up to the status quo economically it can't be a coherent story because the economy is is incoherent. So what I want to do in, in 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 the work I do is to try to connect people to what is human and sustainable in it about their response to the world they're in. What you know, it, they don't like it. Okay, what is it you don't like, and why? Did you know that in the past? stuff has happened just like this did you realize that the way you're feeling is the way that some kid on the street corner in egypt felt in 2011 it's that really so you you say that we're living in a period of, of crisis do you think that perhaps the creative arts should pause and um respond later on when they've got a more coherent idea of of the of the timeline or do you think that the arts should respond now to issues such as brexit such as trump such as the general election or well, whatever well let's remember before before we head down the, the route of contemporaneity mm-hmm. uh, that there is even no work being done of the highest artistic value about things like the holocaust about the suffragettes so art can always explore the past qua the past leave aside what does it mean for now it can always do good work uh, you know i love the book thief uh, the novel the book thief about the uh, a girl surviving the holocaust i think it is a great original piece of literature and it communicates massively because it's a bestseller but i think 
the arts should not pause. In fact, I think the opposite. We are now living through history as it used to feel, speeded up. If you follow the the timeline from, you know, late 1932, January, January, January 33, Hitler comes to power, 34, massive fascist demonstration in France, 36, Spanish Civil War, remilitarization of the Rhineland. This is, this is like, you know, this is like three years. The world changed. It's happening again. Trump, you know, Le Pen hopefully is going to be defeated, but Le Pen's there on 20-odd percent. Uh, Brexit, the break, you know, Viktor Orban in Hungary outlawing NGOs, Turkey cracking down on journalists. I have to say to your listeners, I do not see this ending well. I see it's momentum. It's a ski slope. It, it, it's 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 gathering pace. So in that situation, I think everybody who's involved in the arts, and that includes me, has to ask themselves, what can I do to tell stories that guide people through this urgently changing situation? And so I think, uh, I think, like every like drowning people, we, we'll we'll clutch at the things that we know. So do the things you know. Only do them more aggressively. But I also think there's another big space for us to say, let's do some things we hadn't done before. What are those things? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, this is a theatre podcast. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I'll say to you what, what I said to um, the Young Vic's uh, artistic director, David Lamb, when he asked me, well, what, what should we do? See, I think, first of all, we need to privilege, privilege the voices of people who are affected by this. And that's something I've been really, really impressed with the, with the way the Young Vic and other theatres have done that. So the sex workers play See Me Now, the play based on the experience of young mums in, in Newham called East 15 that's on at Battersea Arts, Arts Centre. That's good. That's a baseline. Uh, I also think, and this might be a little bit scratchy for the for the listenership, much though I appreciate the originality of new writers and I want us to carry on nurturing them, sometimes what you need is for institutions to go, this is the work we want to produce. Um, quite clearly, see, Nick Heitner has gone out and said, I need a play about Brexit. And I think that quite clearly Nick didn't then ask, and where is the 23-year-old that's going to write it? Because maybe that's not the right person. I think there will be, and I hope that this, well, you know, I hope that the experiences that are going to happen to us all in the next two, three years will prompt a massive outburst of new creativity. But I also think that theatre and drama industry, so I include Hollywood, I include the Netflix and the Amazons, have got to come up with things that really, that are crafted that are crafted to speak to us now. The one I always use is Casablanca. Pearl Harbor was attacked December the 7th, 1941. By January, um, a scout for Warner Brothers had bought the script, and by April it was in production, and it came out before a year was over. And in it, Bogart says, if it's December 1941, what time is it in New York? In other words... They had dramatised the entry of America into the war in probably one of the greatest films ever made. How? How? Michael Curtis probably did his best work, the director. The, the, the screenwriters are doing their best work. Bogart's suddenly doing his best work. 
they, we need the institutions of British theatre, of film, of Hollywood, of dramatic, you know, dramatic narrative arts. We, it's, it's the big producers and it's the big decision makers who need to be taking aggressive and brave decisions now, because the the young writers always will and they'll make mistakes. But Paul, that sounds kind of top down rather than bottom it is. up. Yeah, it's unashamedly top down in this sense. Uh, I think. But look, no, it's top down has this amazing empire. Top down has one job to do and it hasn't been doing it. And that is to empower innovation that's effective, effective in the sense that what a lot of top down theatre decision making uh, does is to say, look, I, I must bring new voices. Brilliant. Let's do that. What I wanted to say is we must write the play that brings in audiences of people who voted for Brexit or voted for Donald Trump. And we must that play must, you know, to quote a famous playwright, hold a mirror up to that audience and allow them to see themselves. Now, what do we do to do that? Can, can any one person create that? No, that would be the Casablanca of now. And it needs it's almost a committee of old people who need to do it, experienced people. Now, I'm not saying that's the only thing we need to do. I'm also really interested in formal innovation. I mean, why it's kicking off everywhere here at the Young Vic, soon to be on BBC Two, is a piece of formal innovation. It kind of worked. A lot of people didn't like it. Some liked it. Um, it was the innovation was having me as a real person telling my story on stage and not acting. Uh, well, let's talk about that yeah. then. So that was um, a book that you wrote, which was then turned into a, yep. a piece here at the Young Vic. Why it's kicking off everywhere. What was the idea behind turning it into a play? Well, David Lann had the idea of turning it into a play, and he just said, we've got to turn this into a play. I didn't really know how that would happen, and the young Vic you know, went through several phases of development to try and make that happen, um, which ended up with us trying to say, fortuitously, that there was, there was the opportunity to pitch it to the BBC, and we said, well, let's pitch it to the BBC as a one-off that is on stage and then on TV. Uh, and it kind of evolved. I can't exactly remember who decided I should be in it. Uh, was it you? <laughs> it, it certainly wasn't me. Um, and and in, in the play, we have a, a challenge. Um, I've spent best part of 15 years on TV um, obsessing about methods of storytelling that quote-unquote show instead of tell. That's what TV news has to do. Is there no point standing on a street corner saying, over there, there's a riot? The, the camera has to see the riot. Now, for whites kicking off everywhere, what was important also was for me to tell the story. And so there is a tension within the, the, the storytelling method that, is, that, that involves both showing and telling. And, and uh, I hope this play has a life that is... It, it does two things. It created a kind of space that I've not seen, and some of the theatre professionals who worked with me said, we've never seen this done before. Just technically, a very, very heavily teched, you know, cue after cue. I don't know how many cues <laughs> there were, but, you know, some hundreds uh, of cues uh, in, in in half an hour. Um, heavily teched uh, way of storytelling. So it did that. Um, but it... It also has to do something else, and it has to it has to be able to evolve. I think 
I would like to see us work on something that comes out of it, maybe the same play, maybe something different, that does evolve in the direction of of trying to do something bigger uh, and do something even more immersive. I mean, there was me and three actors on that stage and a maximum 100 people in the audience. I would, I have the, a massive appetite to, 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 to add noughts to, to all of those things. And um, for people that don't know, it was about the global uprisings yeah. uh, across, well, across the globe. Um, when was that book first published? The book was published in early 2012. It was written uh, as the events were going on in 2011, you know, the Arab Spring, the Occupy movement, the Indignados movement in, in Spain. So it was written then, and then I, I, I produced a second version of it called Why It's Still Kicking Off Everywhere in 2013, just too early to realise that 2013 was the turning point where everything was going to get smashed up and... and, and destroyed, you know, in Egypt and, 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 and Syria, for example. Um, so it, the theory or the, the idea behind it is that a new kind of person has emerged thanks to technology. People with multiple cells, people your age, people far less centered around the hierarchical world in which I grew up. See, what propelled me down that route of, which we discussed earlier, um, Catholicism, atheism, socialism, Marxism, Trotskyism. These are all isms. They're all hierarchical ideologies. Because people like me who grew up in a world where if you wanted to find something out, you had to go to a library and start at A and work along till to D until you discovered Dostoevsky. <laughs> yeah? Um, that's how you did things if you didn't know anything. Um, that world of hierarchy has been smashed apart by networks, by our ability to access knowledge instantly and to Learn really quickly. You know, you probably if you want to know about um, crime and punishment, you go on a website and look it up, and Wikipedia tells you about it. It'll lead you straight to the best research on it. You don't need your, your what they call Coles notes. We used to call them those you know, those A level notes. You don't need that. You can go and see. You can watch it online. You can see a dramatization. All of that. The let you your generation don't realize how absence of information forced us down the route of hierarchy. Because to learn, say, about this figure that I'm writing about in um, in the, this play, Kicking Off, and in my next play, Divine Chaos, Louise Michel, uh, to learn about the Paris Commune and Louise Michel, I had to be in a Trotskyist group. I had to be given... The best books on it were written in the 30s. Given a book written in the 30s, saying, Luke, read that, that's the one. Um... No, you don't. No, you just go online. Uh, so the hierarchy was a function of the lack of knowledge. The network brings the ability to to function in a very much more networked and uh, horizontal way, and that's to me, you know, what I think the even though I think even though despite the fact that they were you know crushed and smashed and jailed and all the rest of it, I think confronting power with an anti-power is still one of the most effective things you can do. But living in this state of flux that we do in, in with Trump and with Brexit and the Syrian crisis and, and everything that's going on, is there a risk that you as a writer, as a as a theatre maker, um, it's, could we all be out of date by the time you get to press night, that everything is changing so rapidly yeah. now? I think this is why you've uh, certainly kicking off was, was already about a finished fact, which is the, the, the rise and fall of a network protest movement and who picked up the pieces, Trump, the far right, Assad, Russia... That's who picked up the pieces. The, the narrative arc of that was very clear even before Trump came to power. But when Trump came to power, I said to David Lann and my co-workers on that thing, this is going to be the end now. Because it's no really clear that that's 
that's a story. It's it's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. Unfortunately, no. I think we have to we have to be able to 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 innovate forms so that when we tell a finished story, its relevance is is obvious to the person uh, hearing it. I've got a friend who's an expert in Armenian toasts. And what you have to do is an Armenian drinking toast. You knock back your whatever it is, vodka, your raki. And you've got to tell a story. And then at the end of the story, you've got to say, and the moral of that story is. And I've, I've sat around doing it with quite intellectual English people. None of them can do it. <laughs> because none of us are prepared to commit to what the moral of the story is. And yet, if you look at Hollywood, Hollywood just starts from that. For Hollywood, a premise is not... Uh, you know, one woman takes on big corporation. The premise is always one woman takes on big corporation, thus proving that uh, the, the individual is always right. You know, they always start from the moral of the story. And, you know, no, I don't want to, I, I'm not a reactionary. I don't want us to go back to, you know, mystery plays, mor mor morality plays. We're, we're way beyond that. But, but don't kid yourself, unless... Just in, in script writing, they say, if you don't write the subtext, it will write itself. So unless you write the subtext, unless you write what is it that this is saying to us, it will write itself or somebody else will write it for you. And then what's the point of being creative? Come back to Casablanca. The point is a population turned cynical, depressed, uh, dissolute by living through the depression of the 30s had to find an inspiration to fight fascism and because they couldn't find it in official ideologies they had to find it in their own experience of defeat and betrayal that's what bogart does in casablanca and i would say to anybody just happens to be listening to this who is thinking about what their next artistic project should be a good 20 minute thought experiment would be what would it take for me to write casablanca the casablanca of now and slightly earlier on, you said that the millennial generation uh, have this idea of rejecting grand narratives, of mm. rejecting uh, hierarchy and the status quo. I mean, that didn't quite work for Sanders uh, in the States and didn't work uh, in the, the, the first round of the French uh, elections. Do you think that that's something that really can happen, that we will see a sort of a, re a rejection of everything that we've kind of taken as, as given before? Well, look, people... One of the sad things about the current situation is to see a lot of young people go from protest to mainstream politics and hope somehow that by just investing mainstream politics with all their hopes and enthusiasm, mainstream politics is going to work for them. I think, sadly, it's probably not because although I think Bernie Sanders would have won had he been selected and I think Jeremy Corbyn can win the election certainly can take the Tory majority away and I think Mélenchon you know became within three percent of becoming the left candidate it's always just it's always not quite isn't it why because we live in a society structured around the power of the rich and they can deploy a lot of energy against us my generation grew up for all our hierarchism and all our mistakes we made we did grow up understanding that politics is on the street the moment that the uh, resistance to the Conservatives actually takes place, they will come knocking on the door of Labour and say, have you got a little guy with a beard, please, and a nice jacket, nice soft-spoken person to please put this all back in its box? That's what they... Time immemorial elites have to come to left politicians at the moment when 
the mass of people have just rejected everything. And my leftism is that. My leftism is about from below creating a counter power to the power of the elite that can endure these periods of defeat and, and, and relative depression. Which which kind of segues nicely into the play I'm, the play I'm working on right now. Tell because, me about that play. Right, look. Do you know what? Brecht wrote a play called The Days of the Commune, yeah, about the Paris Commune. But he actually based it on another play uh, by uh, a Norwegian uh, playwright called Grieg. And Grieg's play was called Defeat. And the East German authorities said to Brecht, you've got to produce this, Defeat. And Brecht said, no, it's unproducible. I don't like it. I'm going to rewrite it. And he wrote Days of the Commune. Defeat's quite an interesting play. I think in its in morally, moral terms and political terms, it's a better play because it explores the issue. What do you have to do to win? And is it worth it? And whereas Brecht, writing in East Germany, everything, everything, you know, we must do everything, kill anybody to win. Grieg said, no, you know, it can better to lose and remain human than to become as inhuman as the oppressor themselves. Now, my play is about what happened after the commune was defeated. And it's about four women who get sent to a Pacific island called New Caledonia. Um, exile to paradise is the best way to, uh, to sum it up. They were literally sent 10,000 miles to go and civilise an island that the French thought was uncivilised. And the penal regime was meant to make them become civilised themselves. And in the process, you know, about 4,000 in real life can, um, French communards were sent there. The four women in my play, in general, reject that. In, in general, try and find ways to carry on being revolutionary. And, and one in particular, you know, finds a way to connect with the indigenous people of the island themselves who are, you know, on the verge of insurrection against the French themselves. Now, it's based on a true story, but... It's, it's very different from the work people have seen me done here at the Young Vic because, because it is, it's a fourth wall narrative play, focus on character, focus on psychological development. It's all the things that, um, that are supposed to be old hat. And something's made me want to write it. I can only say that. It's just, I just can't stop myself from writing it, unfashionable though all these genres are. Um, I just want to see four strong middle-aged, working-class women on stage defying history. And is it a different process for you, writing a play rather than writing a, a book? Do, do you act differently in the, in the way do, you go about that? Depressingly, I, I've written a novel as well, so the, 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 the novel writing uh, procedure is quite similar to that that I followed for Divine Chaos of Starry Things, which is on the, the White Bear in Kennington. Uh, it, it's very literary. I start with a storyboard. I start with you know the, the Robert McKee story rules. I start with Jungian archetypes. Um, there's a very interesting piece of work called From Girl to Goddess, which is a kind of kind of almost kind of uh, the Jungian story archetypes re-examined from the woman's point of view. I I, I was I learned a lot from that. I do I write from the outside in. I start with the story and then I write into the characters. And then at a certain point, it took me about a year and a half with uh, with my novel Rare Earth, but it's taken me about six years with this, to be honest. At a certain point, the characters take over, and then they just rip the story up and say "fuck you" to the story, and and they write their own story. I mean, it's a it's a long process, but I don't see any substitute for it. I've written other things that 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 are less uh, deep, 
Um, but that's yeah, that's how I work. Uh, and I what think about it's worth the, doing. What about the logistics of putting on a, a play in a in a fringe theatre? That must be different from what you're used well, to. Well, you know, I've just been here at the Young Vic in the Maria, which is a hundred seat theatre uh, with a, a very decent budget. Uh, now I'm working with some incredibly talented people uh, down there at, at the White Bear, but of course the problem is is the logistics aren't quite the same world class. <laughs> so I've had the set for the thing in my garden all weekend. <laughs> um, we built it last night and it opens tomorrow. So, uh, so you know what I've learned both from appearing on stage here at the Young Vic and and from you know being involved in the sort of back backroom production decisions around uh, at the White Bear is you know how how pitifully actors are paid and mm. how pitifully everybody is paid in this industry, and I kind of you know it's given me a kind of new level of awe at the dedication with which people do it. Um, so yeah. Um, the 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 logistics of of off West End theatre forty three seats um, are are challenging. But you know the other thing is, and it's true of of any small space. It's true of the you know small space spaces in subsidised theatres like the Young Vic. There's a huge value in small space theatre. Don't don't knock it. And I I, I love it. Every time I go to a pub theatre or a small studio theatre, I really think that's it's the high point of the theatrical experience for me. That and opera, and, and most things in between don't turn me on as much. Paul, earlier on you mentioned the word hope, and I want us to end, hopefully, with some uh, message of hope. So what, what do you say to people that perhaps came of age in the 2000s or the 2010s? They watch the news, they see the Syrian crisis, they see the polar ice caps melting, they see a President Trump. How can they be hopeful? Well, they can be, ho- they can be hopeful because they are the most educated generation ever. And a lot of what we're going through is, as it were, the dis- the dissolution of sort of unknowing opposition and the rise of knowing opposition to capitalism. It's taking us longer than I thought it would. But your generation, that generation, are armed with knowledge, armed with the means to manipulate knowledge and use it as a tool... And I think they can therefore redesign the world. And and in spaces where it's not so contested, if you think about architecture or materials design, everybody wants good architecture. Everybody everybody wants great materials design. You you see the way the power of knowledge is amplified by the sudden knowledgeability of everybody. I still believe that it is possible that, that if we give people a objective and a narrative to back that up, and a realisable set of political and economic goals, the left can rebuild itself as a kind of post-capitalist, anti-capitalist in the sense that it wants to replace capitalism peacefully uh, through experiment, through small-scale, through through human-scale activity. That's the left, I think, can triumph. And I'll come back to what I've been rambling on about in this interview for a lot Casablanca that's watch it again watch it again it is that you have to you have to position yourself at that moment 1941 shit the Japanese have just bombed our navy shit they're going to invade what are we going to do we've been staying out of this war we don't want to be in a war you know we the Americans and who are we we are the drunken old older guy we are the you know the kind of you know flirtatious barwoman. We are 
the the crook who runs runs the other bar. We're we're not that you know we're not we're all in it for money and ourselves. And can we find an ideal? Yes, we did. And by and and that I believe that film changed history. And I think there are movies and drama series around that have the potential to actually change history right now. But you know, one reason, we're, you know, the only people who can make another Casablanca right now are Hollywood, Amazon, or Netflix. It's not TV. TV drama is so formulaic and so run by, you know, uh, political correct. You know, I, everything's got to be balanced and even and nothing controversial. Let's let's inspire ourselves by taking the archetypes of the last twenty years, the forgotten and lost children, and showing them how they could make the change they all want. So yeah, I'm incredibly hopeful. Oh, good. Well then, <laughs> then so I hope I. you are. Yes, I am. I am. And Divine Chaos of Starry Things opens at the White Bear um, on the 25th of April, and why it's kicking off everywhere is on BBC Two later on this year. And I suppose Casablanca is available in all good shops. So yep. always, and thank you so much for coming in this afternoon. Or downloads. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for joining us for this episode of Off Book by the Young Vic. If you'd like to hear more conversations with some of the most exciting people in theatre, subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes.